0: folks. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of TGC Midweek. This week on the pod, we're going to be talking about evangelism. This is our third part of our evangelism series. At the table is Michael Novak. My name is Jacob. Michael, how's your week been, man?
1: It's been good. I'm looking forward to summer. Yes. Kids are about to be out of school. Feels like summer already. It does. I love the laid-back nature of summer. <laughs> I don't like the heat as much.
0: But. No. We got a bunch of interns at work, and they're all from like the Northeast and stuff, <laughs> and I'm like, man, it's hot, isn't it? And they're like, oh... It's so much better than the cold. I'm yeah. like, yeah, I give that three days. <laughs> uh, when do they
1: leave? Are they here through August, September, <laughs> uh, they, October?
0: They're no, they're normally here. They leave like the first couple of days in August or something okay. like that. So that's enough they, for them. Yeah, they'll they'll get they'll get some some hot weather. Um but last week we talked about the how of evangelism, got pretty granular with our discussion, and um we've zoomed in and now we're gonna kind of zoom back out talking about evangelism and and look at kind of the modes that you see. The church or people take um, with evangelism. There's four modes. Um, Why don't we go ahead and dive right into those?
1: Yeah, uh, and I'd call them four modes, four approaches Mm -hmm. that the church or Christians tend to take when it comes to witnessing to the world. And before we get into those, I think it's important to lay the foundation and say that Trinity Grace hopes to be a church that our mission statement actually says— reach and renew Mm -hmm. San Antonio with the hope of the gospel. And so we want to be a church for those who are not yet in the room on Sunday mornings. We want to be a church, a group of people that are seeking to reach our friends and our neighbors with the message of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection. And knowing that that's our mission, that that's our goal, there's a few different approaches that the church throughout history, I guess you could say, has taken when it comes to accomplishing its goal of the Great Commission, which is uh, to reach the nations with the gospel. Um, And the first approach that you see the church sometimes take, and we've mentioned this before at Trinity Grace, Mm -hmm. but I don't think um, we've mentioned it so much that um, uh, that it doesn't need to be mentioned again. But the first approach is what we'd call fortification. And in this approach, the goal of the church is to really guard against the assault of the world, Uh, And this approach can be described with, I guess, a bunker mentality uh, where the church withdraws so that they don't become contaminated or polluted by the culture. And the basic task of the church when it comes to fortification is really vigilant preservation. The church cultivates a separate existence, and it really tries to protect itself from exposure to the sinful culture. And in the church's mind, when it comes to fortification, the basic threat is really the destructive character of the culture that we're in, um, which produces um, within the church a culture of anxiety and anger and fear towards the culture. Um, And the church really actively cultivates a separate existence, removing itself completely from the world. And it tends to view the world in oppositional terms, the fortification approach does, expressing opposition and withdrawal. We're just not going to engage. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to circle the wagons, and we're going to create our own culture Mm -hmm. so that we don't have to deal with the culture at large. So that's the first approach that you've seen the church take um, when it comes to Christian witness. The second approach that you often see in the church is what we'd call domination. And in this approach, the calling of the church is really to triumph over her cultural
0: enemies. So whereas fortification was very defensive, this one is more offensive.
1: Yes, it's offensive. It's active. Uh, fortification will be passive. Uh, but the basic task of the church when it comes to domination is to extend its own values into the world. And this normally takes a political form mm-hmm. in our country and in our specific culture where we think if we just get the right people in office – if we could just get our message out, then people would be forced to change. And the basic threat in the eyes of the church is um, basically those who value, whose values differ from, um, from the church's values. And uh, people aren't viewed as those who need to be loved but as people that need to be defeated, mm. um, that need to be argued uh, out of their uh, current belief system. And this view tends to think of the culture in the world in oppositional terms, expressing opposition and aggression, like you said. Um, and so it's very active um, and uh, it expresses itself in an aggressive way. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to say before we move on to this third one that I am aware that each approach has aspects that are commendable. Um But they just fall short in significant ways, I think. As we move through this, you'll see what I mean. But there are some commendable things about the motivations behind these different approaches, even if we would not necessarily agree
0: with them as a church. Mm -hmm. On this domination one, it seems so backwards to me because it's almost as though you're going to correct the actions and the morality of a people that doesn't know the gospel. And that's so backwards. A person's not going to stop their sinful action until they're empowered by the gospel to do so. So it's so backwards to think that if we can just get Christian politicians to force down Christian uh, policy through through the government, that somehow that would right the ship of morality in America.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it it makes me think of the phrase that we can't expect Christians or non-Christians to behave like Christians. Yeah. Um, it's an unfair expectation, and it just leads to frustration mm-hmm. and anger. Um, and then, if they did behave like Christians but weren't Christians, then that would be in direct opposition to a lot of what Jesus talks about in the Gospels, mm. uh, where you know people put on a front, but their heart isn't actually changed. Yeah. And Jesus speaks very um, uh, violently against that specific um, thing in the Gospels. So. The third approach, though, that you see the church sometimes take is what we'd call accommodation, and the calling of the church under this approach is really collaboration with the world in service of the larger good, and the basic task of the church under this approach is active partnership with its neighbors in the interests of social renewal, Mm -hmm. and this is where the gospel can be forgotten, yeah, Um, and you get what has been termed the social gospel, Uh, where the truth claims of Christianity have basically been gutted, and it's all about how compassionate we are uh, with other people. And the basic threat to the church under this approach is its own separatist tendencies. Um, The church becomes indistinct from the culture, embracing uh, the culture's ideologies and methods, and this approach really fails to embrace the prophetic nature of the church. We might serve with our hands and our feet, but we've lost our voice, and, um, and that is a, a, not the place that we want to be.
0: Yeah, under this approach, you really see this idea of Jesus simply being a, a moral teacher who has some good things to say about how you should treat other people. And while that's true, it rejects um, the, the ultimate message that he, he came to teach, which was the gospel. Yes.
1: Yep, Absolutely. Um, and, and, uh, and the, the fourth approach, um, to Christian witness, um, and the, really the approach that we would hold to hopefully at Trinity Grace, um, is, uh, a more biblical approach, the approach that God actually took with us in sending his son to meet us where we are as he left heaven and came to earth and moved into the neighborhood, so to speak. It's known as incarnation. Are what um, a scholar at the University of Virginia who wrote a book to change the world named James Davison Hunter calls faithful presence. And the calling of the church under this incarnation or faithful presence model is to go into the fullness of the culture, bringing the fullness of the gospel for the purposes of redemption. Mm. And unlike fortification, Faithful presence is an approach that says we are seeking to follow Jesus into every sphere of creation uh, that He is Lord over all, and so we get to enter into all and have a voice we don 't we don't fortify we move in, but unlike domination, it sees movement in the world not as angry movement of conquest but of hopeful movement of redemptive love. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we move in not to dominate but to love and to serve and then unlike accommodation, faithful presence retains the integrity of uh, god given character um, and proclamation um it
0: it It says that we should have a voice mm-hmm. um, uh, in in the culture so there's there's two things that you pointed out there, going fully into the culture and bearing and bearing the gospel fully. What is each one of those what do each one of those pieces really mean? What does that look like? What does it mean to go fully into the culture, and then what does it mean mean to fully bear the gospel?
1: Yeah, I think to answer that question, I'd love to share a quote from James Davison Hunter uh, in his book, To Change the World. It's not a long quote, but it's not a short one either. But let me read it, and then maybe we can talk some more. He says at one point in his book, "...faithful presence in the world calls on the entire laity in all vocations, ordinary and extraordinary, common and rarefied." "...to enact the shalom of God in the world. Christians need to abandon talk about redeeming the culture, advancing the kingdom, and changing the world. Such talk carries too much weight, implying conquest and domination. If there is a possibility for human flourishing in our world, it does not begin when we win the culture wars, but when God's word of love becomes flesh in us, reaching every sphere of social life." When faithful presence existed in church history, it manifested itself in the creation of hospitals and the flourishing of the arts, the best scholarship, the most profound and world-changing kind of service and care. Again, not only for the household of faith, but for everyone. Faithful presence isn't new. It's just something we need to recover. Mm. And so he touches on the idea that uh, faithful presence really speaks not just to the ministry, those that are professional um, ministers, but also uh, those who are in a, a large swath of different vocations. Um, we're called to move in, to rub shoulders with our friends and neighbors, our co-workers, to do good work because God is glorified when, uh, when His people do good work that bring flourishing uh, to His world. And so... Um, I think that's what James Davison Hunter means when he talks about faithful presence, and it's so encouraging when you think about it because we can actually do this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's a hopeful goal because it takes the anxiety and fear out of our engagement with the culture. Your calling as a faithful witness to the uh, Christian faith is simply to go into the culture in which you live, um, to do good work, to be a good friend, to be a good employee, to uh, to speak when you have the opportunity to speak for Jesus, uh, to bear the fullness of redemption, and hopefully bring others into that story mm-hmm. as well um, so that they might join in God's family.
0: Yeah. Um, there's a book that I read about a year ago or so, it may have been more, um, by Matt Chandler, who's a, who's a preacher up in Dallas. And the book's called Take Heart, and he actually talks a little bit about this. Um, the whole theme of the book is about... Um, having courage to, to be a Christian in the age of unbelief. Hmm. And he says, um, when we talk about our lives and our responses and what it means to be courageous and faithful in the age of unbelief, what we have to talk about is the Great Commission. That's our mission. That's the Christian life. Everything we do comes back to that. And remember, according to First Peter, one thing courage looks like, along with holy integrity and devotion, is evangelism, hmm. which means in all times and places, but perhaps particularly in this age of unbelief, Courage is going to look like hospitality. Mm. So I think this idea of hospitality goes right along with faithful presence. Yes. And he talks about the four sort of markers of hospitality or what it means to show hospitality, and it's welcome everyone you meet, engage with people, make dinner a priority, Mm. and in all of this love, the outsider.
1: Yep. Yeah. I love that. And it it makes me think of something else that I I heard this week, The, the idea that, evangelism might look more and more in our culture that we're living in, just like bringing somebody to church. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a few decades ago, it was all about equipping Christians to do evangelism. And I don't think that's wrong by any stretch of the imagination. We should always be um, sharpening our tools when it comes to evangelism. But if it takes at least 25 touches with the gospel – for somebody to actually begin to process it and think about it. I think one of the ways we can do evangelism is put people in front of Jesus, Mm -hmm. and we can do that simply by inviting them to church and then maybe discussing what they thought about it afterwards. Yeah. And that's, uh, that is um, not as anxiety-producing as feeling like you've got to share the entire gospel with somebody over the you know coffee or lunch. Mm-hmm.
0: Certainly fix the pressure off of you.
1: Sure. And the pressure's kind of put on, I guess, the religious professional at
0: that point. <laughs> yeah, but, take the pressure off you and yeah. put it on Michael. <laughs> uh, but
1: the hope is that it's, it's done in the context of a relationship that uh, conversation and dialogue can uh, take place in. Yeah.
0: So, are there any examples in Scripture where we see you mentioned in that in that quote that you read about early in the church 's history this idea of faithful presence? Are there good examples in Scripture that we can point to yep. um, that show this example
1: yeah it'd be It'd be harder for me to think of a better example than in the book of Acts uh, towards the middle of the book when Paul is moving through um, the Mediterranean mm-hmm. world and in Acts chapter seventeen, he finds himself in Athens. Um, and it's Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. I'm not going to read the whole passage tonight, but it would be worthwhile going and, and reading this passage if you find some time mm-hmm. this week, Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. And there Paul is in Athens. He's addressing the Areopagus. And as you read the story, you see three um, kind of things that stand out, uh, in my opinion. Um, the first is that Paul enters the story of the culture. Um, he enters the fullness of culture there. Um, and he knows that the Athenians are constantly hearing stories. Um, they're hearing stories about who they are, about what they should be doing, about what's important in this world. And we're hearing those stories too from lots of different places. Um, we believe uh, stories help us make sense of the world in our lives. And we also believe that Christianity comes and offers Uh, itself is the true story of this world. It defines our lives and calls us to participate. And so we see in this passage that Paul finds himself in Athens. He doesn't isolate himself from the culture there. Instead, he engages the culture. He enters their stories. And you got to think this is Athens. It was beautiful. It was sophisticated, but it was also morally wayward and spiritually deceived, much like San Antonio, Mm. much like the United States, much like suburban America. Um, Culture was shaped by Athens, um, just like culture is shaped by cities Mm -hmm. in the United States. And Paul enters and he noticed that Athens is beautiful yet broken, and he didn't leave. He didn't judge. Uh, He didn't isolate. And if you want the chance to tell the story you believe, you've got to first enter in and understand the story that your friends and neighbors believe. And so that's what you see. He earns the right to be heard by entering in, and that only happens as you listen well to mm-hmm. others.
0: I was going to ask you what it looks like for Paul to – you said he engages with, in the, the culture and enters into the culture. And I think one of the things that we can point to to answer that is he kind of examines their pantheon mm-hmm. and says, you have an unknown God. Oh, I know who the unknown God is, and it's the only God. Yes. So he he engages with the claims that those folks are making and then enters his argument for the gospel within that.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting, too, in Acts 17, you'll notice that he uses poets and authors from the culture, Mm. and you see him quoting them uh, in the scriptures.
0: Stoicism was real big at at this point. Yeah, and so
1: he he knows what they believe. He's aware of what they're reading and what their influences are, Um, and uh, he even speaks back to them um, what they believe almost better than they could articulate it himself.
0: What would that look like in modern American culture?
1: Well, I think it's uh, you know you could think about that in a number of different ways. I do think it's important um, for us uh, to be engaged in um, what the culture at large is engaged in. Uh, maybe not in the same way they're engaged in it, but at least to be aware of what are the top 10 New York Times bestselling novels? Mm. Um, are we reading the newspapers? Um Uh, Are we aware of what the most popular shows or movies Mm. are in our culture? Because they're popular because they're speaking to deep Uh, needs normally that our culture is asking about. And I'm not saying um, that we need to be watching Game of Thrones. I've never seen an episode. (laughs) I know that there's a lot of talk. Should Christians watch or not? Um, I I just—I've not seen the show personally. Uh Um, But— it's things like that that you've got to be aware of. I mean, there's a reason why tens of millions of people are tuning into that mm-hmm. show. Um and to at least begin to ask the question, why is this so attractive? Mm. There's normally something far deeper uh, that attracts people than uh than than mm-hmm. can be seen on the surface.
0: So Paul goes into into Athens, which is an area that is um is fully pagan and is uh Um, as you said, spiritually wayward, but all of that kind of notwithstanding, but the the Athenians were still a people that were obsessed with wisdom and truth. Mm -hmm. And we think of all the great Greek philosophers that we studied in school. I mean, they were a people that were really interested in what is truth and how do I attain wisdom? And so it seems like you're saying that, you know, Paul's example in Acts 17 tells us that this sort of evangelism is possible, but I don't know what that analogy holds in 2019 America, because you would certainly not characterize our culture as one which seeks wisdom and truth. So how does that stand up?
1: Yeah, I think this is where it's important to uh, make a distinction between pluralism and relativism. And this is something that I experienced on the campus, and it's something that I think about often. And Christianity exploded in first century Greco-Roman world, which was an extremely pluralistic society and culture. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Pluralism meaning that there were lots of different belief systems, lots of different stories, but that truth was still believed to um, be a thing Mm -hmm. that you could come to and attain. There was a capital T truth. There was a capital T truth. And so, in a pluralistic society, there might be eight people at the table that believe different things, and you can throw your belief or truth on the table, and it can be, um, it can basically be uh, examined. examined and verified, and you can actually win people to your truth claim when it comes to uh, a pluralistic society or culture. Where we've moved to, I think, in our culture, uh, maybe not completely. Uh, but you definitely see it is what we'd call relativism. And in, in a relativistic culture, Christianity cannot thrive. Uh, because in a relativistic culture, people say, your truth for you, yeah. my truth for me. If it makes you feel good, if you believe it, that's great. Go with it. I'm going to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And so that is not examining truth claims based on their um, their merit. Um, and, and how they make sense of
0: this world. It's merely taking your own desires and your own impulses and assuming that because you want to do something that it is good and right and true. Yes. It basically makes yourself God.
1: Well, relativism not, guts truth altogether, yeah. basically.
0: Um, your truth for you, my truth for me. There's no
1: such thing as a capital T truth. Mm. Um, and so I always encourage people, you know, pluralism is kind of a dirty word in evangelical circles. I actually think it's something that we should strive for. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to be in a pluralistic society where we can have real conversations about what truth is, big T truth, and you can actually persuade people to believe um, what you believe truth to
0: be. You mean to tell me that there is value in making a strong rhetorical argument with the intent to persuade someone who thinks something differently? you,
1: would, yeah, you That's where colleges were uh, – I think that's the the what they were founded upon. Because
0: that is not something that you see – On Twitter and the New York Times.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But it's interesting. I do think that you've got to think pluralism, we can actually survive and even thrive in a pluralistic culture. I I think that Christianity, you see the explosion in first and second century in a pluralistic world because, you know, Paul's going out and he's telling a story that people gravitate to Mm -hmm. because they're like, wow, this makes sense of the world. This makes sense of me. This makes sense of God. In a relativistic society, that's not even a possibility.
0: And so, um, do you think that this, this is the role for the Christian and even the church corporately to engage with civic society and actually um, seek policies that promote? plural the kind of pluralism that we used to have and not the relativism that we have today.
1: Yeah, I think that, that that definitely is um in bounds. Yeah. Um I think that if we can craft a a playing field where people can bring their ideas into a marketplace of different ideas yeah. um and the best idea wins, that's kind of what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. An even playing field. And relativism completely takes that away. Um and so not an expert on these two uh, things, but it's helpful uh, as I think about our culture in terms of pluralism and relativism, sure, and, and where are we and where 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 do we where should we be where do we want to be absolutely so um, but there's two other things you see Paul doing in this pluralistic society as he approaches them. He not only enters their story he also comes in and he affirms and challenges uh the story that he sees and so We see Paul enter into the culture, and in verse 22, he compliments their religious impulses. Mm -hmm. Um, He affirms their desire to seek out truth. Um, He uses their own cultural authorities, actually quoting two of their own philosophers in verse 28 of Acts 17, affirming their insight, granting their art and their culture dignity, Um, basically saying you've got something to offer. You've got wisdom and insight that's valuable. Um And so he affirms them, and he does this because he knows that mankind is made in God's image, and there's still plenty of aspects of that image to affirm, but he doesn't just stop at affirmation. He also moves on to challenge. Yeah. And um, affirmation without challenge is really fearful and untruthful, and it leads to relativism mm-hmm. if you just affirm and don't challenge. But challenge without affirmation comes across as judgmental or condemning, and it leads to fundamentalism. Yeah. Um, But what we see Paul do is he challenged the Athenians by offering something big enough to bear the weight of their identity. He says, I can tell you're searching. And he challenges the idols where the Athenians find their identity and significance. And he points to God who can bear the weight of their identity. So I love the idea of affirming and challenging when you think about uh, faithful presence and evangelism. And then the last thing you see Paul do is he tells an alternative story to that culture. Um, So Paul takes it one step further in his example of faithful presence, um, telling them an alternative story that they could believe in. And he invites them to believe it and to live out this new story that he tells, which requires them to make a change Mm -hmm. of what they believe. Um, We see Paul encounter two groups of people in this passage, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And the Epicureans believed in God, but they thought he was detached and distant. God doesn't really care about the world, so they sought pleasure in life. That was the Epicureans. The Stoics didn't believe in God, but that um, they thought that strength and peace could be found from within. They looked uh, to themselves for stability in life. Um, A Stoic person, you know, Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Uh, Paul knows these stories, and he crafts his engagement with their beliefs in mind, and he offers an alternative story. He basically shares a God who can be known. He tells them that God is involved in the world. He's speaking to the Epicureans. He's confronting them directly, saying, this God can actually be known. Um, And then he comes and tells the Athenians that God will one day come and make all things right by renewing us from the outside, confronting the Stoics, saying that it's not internal strength that's going to save us, It's something outside of us that Mm -hmm. has to save and rescue us and renew this world. And so we see that Paul offers this story, and it's interesting at the end, they want to hear more. Uh, They invite him back to the Areopagus, and it leads us to the conclusion that this takes time. It's a process. Like we have said over the weeks, it's not going to be you're sealing the deal over a cup of coffee or a lunch. Um, It's going to be relational evangelism where the dialogue continues, mm-hmm. sometimes you're hanging out with folks just to have fun and get to know them, and other times the dialogue can turn to more serious, sober things when you talk about religion and mm-hmm. the gospel
0: specifically. But how can we engage in this way with with the folks that we know in this culture when, as soon as the, the conversation turns to anything heavier than sports, the culture has given them an out to just say... Well, that's true for you, and that's fine. But don't shove it down my throat, or or I have I have my own truth, or or whatever the the buzz term is yeah. today. So how can we engage like Paul does when when people are instantly putting up the shield?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because you can't control other people, um, and you definitely don't want to force this down their throat because I don't think that would be uh, the right method or approach. But I I think of it in terms of walking through the open door. Mm. Um, And so if folks give you an opening to say something of significance or substance, what would it look like uh, to walk through that door um, and pepper these things throughout the relationship? Um, Also, you can talk in terms of like fears, anxieties, and angers. Everybody has these emotions. And as Christians, we believe that Um, that these emotions reveal something about a person's heart and even their belief system. And so you could even work through the back door, so to speak, and say, what makes you angry these days? Why does that make you angry? And kind of use uh, their emotions as a way to draw out maybe the idols of their hearts, what they really value and treasure, um, and to use that conversation as a back way uh, to talk about the gospel. Yeah. and so it does take some skill, you yeah this is a hard thing to it, do I, it's not easy, and if somebody puts up a, a barrier you 're not going to get over it if they don't want you to and so but I think we can be the type of people that take others seriously, and I think that if they realize we're serious uh, in conversation and how we love and how we serve um, that we might be surprised at the serious, somber uh, or sober um responses that we get mm. from others um so I, I i just wonder if some of it not we're not to blame because we're not very sober and serious mm. a lot of times either mm-hmm. so um yeah
0: yeah there's definitely a, a tendency and for myself when the conversation turns to something more heavy than sports to turn it to something lighter than sports me too <laughs> it's so
1: natural to want to do that it's
0: yeah. just easier to do that and then get out of the conversation and yep. go home
1: it's yeah. a hurdle to evangelism, like mm-hmm. we talked about yesterday. Yeah. How long is this going to take?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up. Do you have any final thoughts on this?
1: I don't really. Uh, you know, thanks for asking good questions. You got it. Um, and uh, like we always say, and I, I want to say this again, um, these are thoughts to get the gears turning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we might say some things in this podcast uh, that we would want to maybe go back and edit out. We don't normally do a lot of editing, so you're getting us at uh, a roll um, yep. back and forth.
0: That's uh, that's Michael qualify, qualifying his Game of Thrones Yeah, comment. my Game <laughs> of Thrones comment,
1: I'll tell you. Um I, I'm, yeah. But yeah, these I, are just things for people to do. I don't to want to about. touch Game of Thrones with a 10 foot pole on one hand, but I also think that people are looking uh, to their friends and even to their pastor to speak into these issues. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so I don't want to be scared to do that. Um, I'm just not prepared to talk about Game of Thrones right now. <laughs> um, and I don't know why it came out of my mouth.
0: So, yeah. Well, it's a big thing. I mean, people at where I work, people at the office, everyone's talking about it all sure. the time. So it's certainly a cultural phenomenon. Um, I, I was reading. I get this business newsletter every day called Morning Brew, and they were talking about other production companies trying to capture the same kind of kind of not cult following, but just popular culture following that Game of Thrones has. And uh, in there, they mentioned that Showtime is making a. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a video game called Halo that was like super popular that I was like a big fan of, and oh. Showtime is making a Halo. Oh wow! Series, so I've heard of Halo. Yeah, too. I will certainly nerd out about that one. So.
1: Well, and you know, it's just you can't speak about something you don't know. Like, I don't know yeah. a character's name. I don't even know the storyline of the movie. Like, where is it or is it the show? I don't yeah. know where it takes place. Is it sci-fi? Is it drama? <laughs> I have
0: no clue. Yeah, let me tell you about the land of Westeros first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's it, yeah, it's a fantasy thing. Okay, um, it was a book series prior to ah, HBO from like okay. from like the '90s or something. I mean, the book series has been around.
1: Yeah. Obviously, I'm not doing what Paul did. I'm entering <laughs> the culture story.
0: Yep. If you want to send Michael a box set of the HBO Game of Thrones Blu-ray... Um you know, yeah. go ahead and do that. <laughs>
1: I am fortifying myself in some ways. Like I said, it's good. <laughs> There's things to be commended in all the approaches. Yeah. And maybe we should fortify against some, some aspects of our culture.
0: There are certainly some things in game of Thrones that you would want to fortify against. Sure. So don't send Michael box sets of game of Thrones. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, that's enough I <laughs> answer. That'll get us in <laughs> trouble with someone. So let's, let's wrap it up there. Um, as always, guys, if you have questions, send those in to Michael at Trinity grace, or you can text those questions to two. Nine two zero zero seven eight three. next week we're going to be t- we're going to be answering all the questions that have been sent in on the topic of evangelism or any other questions that might um kind of get thrown in there and then uh we'll probably dive into an- another little mini series the week after that so uh, we appreciate you tuning in until next time take care